Morning, everyone. Well, as, as Jeff has mentioned this morning, we're going to be talking about righteousness. And righteousness is not really something that is valued much today in society. It's not really something that's thought about much in today's society. We value things like intelligence and physical fitness. We value success, beauty. We even value things like honesty and compassion. But righteousness? Do you know anyone that you would describe as righteous? You should, because you're sitting in a church. You should be surrounded by people that you could describe as righteous. But it is a word that makes us cringe a little bit, isn't it? If someone called you righteous, would you take it as a compliment? Or would you wonder if they were having a bit of a go at you? It is a word that seems to have suffered over time with a change in its popular usage. It has become something that it was never really intended to be. And as a result, we Christians are losing sight of who we were really intended to be. It's a word that we need to take hold of and to really understand and to live because righteousness is who we are in Christ. It's our identity. Now, if you look up the word righteousness, you will see it described as the quality of being morally right or justifiable. And the example that's given here is we had little doubt about the righteousness of our cause. And that's a definition that falls miles short of the biblical definition of righteousness. Biblical righteousness primarily involves being in a right relationship with God. It's about conforming to his character and doing what is required under his covenant with us. Now, of course, there'll be moral consequences to that, moral outworkings of it, but righteousness is primarily not about morals. It is about relationship. And the Holman Bible Dictionary describes righteousness as the actions and positive results of a sound relationship within a local community or between God and a person or his people. Righteousness is therefore primarily about relationship. Morals are merely the outworking of that right relationship with God. Now, there are a couple of key problems that the word righteousness suffers from in our culture. And the first of those is a changing use of the word over time. And the classic here is the colloquial use of the word righteous in surfing culture and other cultures, made famous by the 1986 description of Ferris Bueller in that movie that people of my era will know, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, as a righteous dude. 
And it meant that he was a popular and fun-loving guy, not that he was living in a right relationship with God. And it was a word that was picked up by surfing culture. And so if you surfed well, you were said to be righteous. Had nothing to do with your relationship with God. The second problem that this word suffers from is a convergence between the terms righteous and self-righteous, such that in our culture there doesn't seem to be much difference between people's understanding of these two terms. If I said to you, oh, he's so righteous, most likely you would assume not that he's living in a right relationship with God, but that he thinks he's always correct or morally superior to everybody else. Perhaps more like a Pharisee than a disciple. And herein lies a huge problem for us because Jesus reserves his harshest criticism and condemnation for the Pharisees. And it strikes me that perhaps these two words have converged for a reason. Could it be that when outsiders look at us and listen to us, they can't tell the difference between righteous and self-righteous? Are the actions and the positive outworkings of our relationship with God being played out as little more than a self-righteous kind of moral grandstanding? Are we more like Jesus? Or are we more like the Pharisees in the eyes of those that look in on us? And it's a great question. And we love to give the Pharisees a hard time in our Bible studies and discussions. But are we really that different from them? Am I more like Jesus, righteous, or the Pharisees, self-righteous? And I came across a great post by a guy called Frank Powell. And he provides 12 indications that you could be a modern-day Pharisee. And I found his post hilarious, but also a little frightening because there is a little bit of Pharisee in all of us. And I think as we go through, you might see yourself in maybe one or two of these um, comments that he made. So here's just a taste. We're just going to do a quick checklist. We're not going to go through all 12. But number one, the Pharisees were obsessed with pointing out the sins of others. But when Jesus met with sinners, he neither condemned nor threatened them. So I think the number one sign that you might be more like a Pharisee than like Jesus is that you spend more time and energy talking about what you stand for, or what you stand against, sorry, rather than what you stand for. You spend more time pointing out other people's problems rather than sharing the gospel with them. The Pharisees were also obsessed with outward appearance, with reputation and with status. And what they pretended to be and presented themselves as, as an, in public was not always what they really were like in private. They didn't like to show weakness or vulnerability. And so the number two sign that you might be more like a Pharisee than like Jesus 
is that you don't spend a lot of time repenting of your sin. Because to be quite frank, you don't think that you have any serious sins to repent of. The Pharisees also loved black and white. It's very easy to measure things when they're in black and white. You're either right or you're wrong. The grey areas are complicated because they involve the heart, they involve motive, and they consider the mind. And there's a lot of grey in the Bible. So the number three sign that we could be more like Pharisees than like Jesus is that we see every issue in black and white. There's either right or there's wrong, and we're not really that interested in anything grey. The Pharisees also knew the scriptures better than anyone else in their time, and yet in Matthew 9:13, Jesus rebukes them, quoting a passage from Hosea and telling them to go and learn what it means. You see, the Pharisees knew their scriptures inside out, and they'd created a whole system to ensure that they and everybody else abided by those scriptures. And yet they failed to allow the word of God to change their hearts. And so the number four sign that we might be more like Pharisees than like Jesus is that we read the Bible to substantiate our own convictions and to convince others that they are wrong rather than reading the Bible as a means to grow ourselves more into the image of God. Now, the Pharisees were also an exclusive group from quite similar backgrounds. The disciples of Jesus were not. Jesus chose his disciples from varied backgrounds, a doctor, a tax collector, fisherman, a zealot, even one who he knew would betray him. And so the number five sign on my list of reasons why we might be more like the Pharisees than like Jesus is that all of our Christian friends, or worse still, our whole church, looks and acts exactly like we do. More like Jesus or more like the Pharisees, which are we? Now, having said this, I think if the Pharisees of Jesus' time were to hear how they're often described by us today, they would be deeply shocked because they were the keepers of the law, the defenders of the faith and the guardians of God's covenant people. And the vast majority of them, I'm sure, would have been well-intentioned people. But somewhere along the line, righteousness morphed into self-righteousness. And if it can happen to them, it can surely just as easily happen to us. And when it does, we inadvertently contribute to the death of the word righteousness because we who are supposed to be righteous demonstrate an air of self-righteousness. So it's time we rediscovered and reclaimed and grew to love this word righteousness. After all, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It's the central part of the Sermon on the Mount. The whole rest of it pivots around 
this one beatitude. Now, given that we're in the middle of a, a, a Christmas series here, it's no surprise that righteousness has everything to do with the birth of a baby laid in a manger in a stable in Bethlehem all those years ago. And we're going to get there eventually today, but given that this series that we're preaching um, at the moment is titled Spoken by the Prophets and Fulfilled in Christ, we'd better deal with the prophecy first. And since the prophecy was given 600 years before the birth of Christ, we're going to need a little bit of context to bring this prophecy to life for us this morning. So I want you to brace yourself because this next slide is pretty ugly and pretty complicated, but if you stay with me, it'll be quite painless, I promise. So I'm going to make it a little bit more palatable for you by just taking it in bite-sized chunks. So what we've got up here, up the top, is our timeline. And of course, it's before the birth of Christ, so we're dealing that you see here. The second line down is looking at the major powers, whoop, major powers of the time. So we've got Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and then Persia. They were the dominant empires across that timeline. The next two lines down here looking at what was happening to God's people at the time, the things that they were facing. So um, Pastor Glenn mentioned last week that um, with the death of King Solomon, um, the two kingdoms separated and you had the northern kingdom with ten tribes and the southern kingdom with only two tribes. Northern kingdom um, had a whole range of kings and as he said last week, none of them were any good. All of them were evil and led the people into idolatry, which eventually led to the fall of Israel around here. So they were taken captive by the Assyrians, leaving the southern kingdom of Judah, which consisted of the tribes of Benjamin and Judah, um, sort of alone as God's people left in, in the promised land. The southern kingdom also had 19 kings and they also had one queen. Twelve of them were evil, but they had eight kings that were good in the sight of God and led the people back to a right relationship with him in that time. Now, for much of this time, what we'll do here is we'll, we'll just look at this area here. So for much of this time Judah was alone um, until Judah fell here. So the period that we're looking at is this time immediately before the exile and just after the exile into Babylon which is sort of this period around 600 BC. And so if we move down here this is sort of blown up a little bit more for you here this period between 615 and 580 BC. And you can see the kings that were ruling at that time. So King Josiah, who was the last of the good kings. Um, Jeremiah was called, I think, to prophecy in about the 13th year of his reign, somewhere around there. 
And Jeremiah continued to prophesy throughout all of the reign of all of these kings. So we had good king, bad king, really, really bad king, bad king, bad king, and eventually the destruction of Jerusalem. And throughout this period, there were three major prophets. So Daniel here was part of the first group that was deported into Babylon. It was a relatively small group and they were taken into the king's palace. So Daniel was the major prophet prophesying to in the king's courts. Um, then there was Ezekiel. He was taken um, away with a larger group of exiles into Babylon and so he prophesied to that larger group of, of exiles in the foreign land. Jeremiah remained with the remnant that was in Jerusalem and Judah and he had quite an unenviable task. He had to announce God's judgment on his people for their unfaithfulness um, and for their worship of Baal and this judgment came in the form of the Babylonians who eventually destroyed Solomon's temple in 586. So Jeremiah lived through all of these deportations. He lived through all of these evil kings. Um, this one here uh, actually had some of Jeremiah's writings cut up and destroyed. Um, he also had started a cycle which saw Jeremiah persecuted and then put in prison and then released again. More persecution, put in prison, released again. Jeremiah had a very difficult time um, that he had to live through. And the last of these four evil kings was Zedekiah. And he reigned up until the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, all that Judah's kings should have been is summed up in the name of their last king, Zedekiah, which means the righteousness of Jehovah. And what is fascinating about this king and about his name is that that wasn't his original name. His original name was Mataniah, which means the gift of Jehovah. And his name was changed by Nebuchadnezzar when they were taken captive. So we don't know, was Nebuchadnezzar trying to have a go? Was he poking fun at Zedekiah for the defection of the people um, from their God? We, we don't know. But by this name change, Nebuchadnezzar inadvertently sets the stage for one of the most beautiful prophecies in all of the Bible where God announces through the prophet Jeremiah that in spite of all that his people have done, in spite of their continued rebellion and the destruction that they will endure as a result, ultimately, in his mercy, he will do for them that which no king could do and he will be their righteousness. He will raise up a righteous branch. Jehovah Sikenu. Jehovah our righteousness or the Lord our righteousness. So we're going to read now together the words of this prophecy from Jeremiah 23 verses 1 to 6.
Jeremiah 23, 1 to 6. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. And I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Yehovah Sidkenu. This one wouldn't be the righteousness of the Lord, as Zedekiah's name implied. He would be the Lord and he would be our righteousness. Now in the northern kingdom, the Assyrians replaced all of those they took away with other captives from other lands and so God's people never returned to the north. But the Babylonians didn't repopulate the southern kingdom with other captives and so it remained largely desolate and Jerusalem remained in ruins until King Cyrus of Persia allowed that remnant to return and rebuild in the promised land. And of this time, God spoke again through the prophet Jeremiah. And if you turn ahead another 10 chapters to Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 12 to 16, we will see what he spoke through the prophet. Jeremiah 33, 12 to 16. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely and this is the name by which it shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Did you notice the similarities between those two passages? There's a lot of similarities. Both of them speak of a righteous branch. Both of them mention the line of David. Both of them speak of justice and righteousness. Both passages speak of being saved and of dwelling securely. Both passages mention Yehovah Sidkenu, the Lord is our righteousness. But there's a very important key difference between those two passages. Did you spot it? I'll make it a little bit easier for you. I'll put up the last line out of each of the passages. In his days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness compared to in those days 
Judah will be saved, Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. In the first passage, he, and in the second passage, it. In the first passage, he refers to his, which refers to the righteous branch, which is Jehovah. In the second passage, it, which refers to Judah, or God's people, it will be called the Lord our righteousness. And that is the very heart of the Christmas message. He, the Lord our righteousness came to save the lost and to do for them what they were unable to do for themselves and what no king could do for them the true gift of God born in a stable to be perfect spotless sacrifice offered for us crucified so that we might be righteous restored to a right relationship with God God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 21. The writer of Hebrews describes this Jesus as a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Any guesses as to what Melchizedek means? It means a couple of things, but one of the things it means is king of righteousness. Jesus came as a priest in the order of Melchizedek who was the king of righteousness or whose name means king of righteousness. Such a priest, says the author of Hebrews, meets our need, one who is holy and blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. So when Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. What's he really saying in the light of these prophecies that we have explored today? He's not talking about piety. He's not talking about people who aspire to live a good life or aspire to high morals I think what he's really saying is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God through faith in the righteous branch Jehovah Sidkenu they will be made right with God they will be clothed in his righteousness One man who fully grasped the reality of this was a guy called Robert Murray McShane. And he's remembered as a preacher, as a pastor, as a poet, as a man of prayer. And he lived through the Scottish Revival in the early 1800s. 
McShane lived a short life. He died at age 29 of typhus. And he was a minister for only seven years. But he has had impact far beyond his seven years because many of his sermons and much of his poetry and writing was preserved and published. And while recovering from a bout of the fever that would eventually cut his life short at the age of 29, McShane wrote his most famous poem, which has since been set to music as a hymn, and it tells the life story of someone who has come to fully understand Yehovah Sikenu and all that he means and does for us. McShane was what most people would call good today. He was a good person. He stayed clear of trouble. He helped others. He was quite selfless. In fact, he was often mistaken for a Christian because of his upright and moral way of living. But his righteousness was a form of self-righteousness because he felt no burden of sin on him at all and he felt no need to repent of anything. His own good works and his own efforts were sufficient for him at that stage. Verse 1 of his poem, which he published as Yehovah Sid Kenyu, the watchword of the reformers, reads, I once was a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Yehovah Sid Kenyu was nothing to me. Verses 2 and 3 speak of the impact of Christ on him. Certainly, he was afflicted by the cross and the thought of Christ's suffering on the cross in the same way that so many today are affected by the Christmas story. We saw them at the carols on Sunday night. People love to come and look at the nativity and ooh and ah at it, but it doesn't touch their hearts. It's just a historical story to them. McShane writes, I oft read with pleasure to soothe or engage Isaiah's wild measure and John's simple page. But even when they pictured the blood-sprinkled tree, Yehovah Sid Kenyu seemed nothing to me. Like tears from the daughters of Zion that roll, I wept when the waters went over his soul, yet thought not that my sins had nailed to the tree. Yehovah Sid Kenyu was nothing to me. And then there comes a turning point in his life, an awakening in his soul. The Holy Spirit convicts him of sin and of the futility of his own efforts to atone for them. When free grace awoke me by light from on high, then legal fears shook me, I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see. Jehovah Sidkenu, my saviour must be. My terrors all vanished before the sweet name. My guilty fears banished. With boldness I came to drink at the fountain, life-giving and free. Yehovah Sidkenu is all things to me. The hymn traces McShane's journey from sinner, depending on his own self-righteousness, to one who is made truly righteous in Christ. And only by his righteousness can we be likewise made righteous before God. The last two verses speak of his joy and his surety in the face of death, knowing that his sins had been covered by the righteousness of Jesus. 
Yehovah said, can you, my treasure and boast. Yehovah said, can you, I ne'er can be lost. In thee shall I conquer by blood and by field, my cable, my anchor, my breastplate and shield. Even treading the valley, the shadow of death, this watchword shall rally my faltering breath. For while from life's fever my God sets me free, Yehovah said, can you, my death song shall be. We can never be righteous on our own. Self-righteous, yes, anyone can be that, but never righteous on our own. Righteous is the heart of Christmas. It was given as a gift to we who could never earn it nor deserve it, but to a people who simply put their faith in the righteous branch, Yehovah said, can you, and are clothed in his righteousness. What a gift. All we need to do is take it, treasure it, and live it. Will you do that this Christmas? We're going to stand and sing a response to that in Amazing Grace.